0: Alright, so we're in 1 Kings chapter 16, if you want to click your Bibles there. Uh, Context is, last week we ended with Baasha, which means wicked. Uh, He was one of the northern kingdom kings that uh, replaces Jeroboam's line. He replaces Nadab, again a horrible name for a king. Uh, The northern kingdom's a mess, and they're a mess right off the bat. They left the people of God, they left the worship in Jerusalem, And in doing so, they left what God ordained for the Israelite people. Um, And they have just a mess. So Asa, the king of the southern kingdom, continues to be the reference point in verse 1. Or, I'm sorry, as we go through each of the kings. So we're going to notice that Asa is the reference point. Asa, the king of Judah, reigns for 41 years. He sees the northern kingdom have seven different kings during his reign. So we keep seeing this over and over again. And so we're going to go through four of those Kings, but all four kings tonight are from the northern kingdom as they're falling away from the worship of God the fastest. Um, and we'll end tonight with Ahab, and uh, who's probably the worst. And that's not Captain Ahab, that's King Ahab, but we'll get there later tonight. Verse 1 Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu the son of Hanani uh, against Baasha, saying, insomuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you the ruler over my people Israel, and you've walked in the way of Jeroboam, and you've made my people, of, people Israel sin, and have made my people Israel sin, to provoke me to anger with their sins, surely I'll take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat." And the dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did, and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah. And then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and in being like the house of Jeroboam because he killed them. So again, when we're looking at the Book of Kings, we're looking at the spiritual history of Israel. What they did right, what they did wrong. Imagine a group of little Levite scribes hanging out in Babylon, trying to say, how did we get from the glory of David and Solomon to being basically slave immigrant people in Babylon? How did this happen? And they're looking at each of these kings and how they depart from the ways of God over and over and over again. And what happens to the Jewish people in ba- Babylon, or Babylon is that they crystallize. In all of these failures, God's teaching the people of Israel, the people of God, to be the people of God. And even when they reject God, the consequences of that are starting to form and shape a new kind of culture on the planet Earth. The Jewish people didn't rise and have militaries that took over and conquered they came out of Egypt as slaves. And they really followed the power of God in every stage of the way. So when these Levites are sitting in Babylon asking the question, how did we get here? Then they follow the history of the 10 tribes. And what they're looking for as they do that is they're looking very carefully for this idea of how do we never make these mistakes again? We don't want to keep making the same mistakes. So Jehu is this prophet that shows up. In the Hebrew, the word Jehu means... Jehovah is he, and he gets a word from God and records it in the temple records, and then he delivers it. So he serves God for over 50 years, also giving word to Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles. So Jehu is a prophet. He's around for a long time. And his job tends to be to go to these kings and say, you're doing the wrong thing. But what he does when he does that, every time a prophet was going to give a prophecy, or when it says, then the word of the Lord came, verse 1, That's code that we're seeing for something that gets recorded with the scribes at the temple. So Jehu, if he's still following Yahweh, would go down and say, I've gotten a word from the Lord, and he's going to do two things with that word. He's going to write it down and hand it to the scribes at the temple for record keeping, and then he's going to go deliver that message to the people of God. And we don't know what order they would do those two things in, but a prophet of God had to put his word on record. I think this is important. Because it distinguishes what a prophet is in the Bible versus what some people call a prophet today. There was a huge amount of accountability with the prophet in the Old Testament. Because they had to write it down and go to the scribe records, if they got it wrong and they were still alive, they were killed. That's how accountable they were. If they got it wrong and it was after their natural lifespan, all of the records in the temple having to do with that prophet would be destroyed and thrown out. So when these prophets went to these kings, not only did they risk their own life and the fact that that king might not like them, but they risked their life in that, what if I'm wrong? What if that wasn't God talking to me, right? So they had to be absolutely sure that God gave them a word. And we see through generations that this doesn't happen that much. And I think sometimes in the church today, we think that God's going to speak in that clear of a way to every single Christian all of the time. And the New Testament does promise that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the fellowship of the saints will instruct and guide us through our life. And we get God's Word that way. But the way God's Word is being delivered to these prophets is an unquestionable, direct communication to these prophets. So unquestionable that they stake their life on it. Because if you're going to walk up to Baasha and say, you're a sinner and God's going to take away your house, you're not going to be popular with that king. And we're going to end tonight introducing Elijah, who is even more gutsy with Ahab, right? The whole nation's going to be in famine and you're all going to be in trouble and the only one that can stop it is me and then he goes into hiding. And that's where we're going to end tonight. These prophets were gutsy human beings or they were 100% sure that they had heard from God and they staked their life on it. And so I think that's an interesting measure of a prophet, right? That we say, are you willing to stake your life on it that that's what God said to you? Because that's what real prophets do. And if you're wrong, are you willing to be purged from church records and history and never speak in a leadership role ever again if you're wrong? And we got some televangelists that they would be off the air immediately because they mispredicted. There was no mistakes with prophets, yet we tolerate that a lot today. So good, faithful speaking of God's word to other people, this Jehu serves longer than any of these king's. And we see these kings with fairly short things. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 34, they mention a book of Jehu. So Jehu is a big enough prophet to have gotten an entire scroll committed to his prophecies. Yet it didn't make it into the scriptures, but when, I imagine when we get to heaven, we'll have the book of Jehu to read. So I think that's kind of interesting that he just gets mentioned in passing here as a servant of God. He's the son of Hanani. We know Hanani was also a prophet. He was imprisoned because he rebuked Asa in the southern kingdom in Judah because Asa made that deal with Syria. And Hanani is the guy that came and said that was the wrong thing to do. And he got thrown in prison for it. So then Jehu stepped up and started saying similar things to the northern kings. So Jehu is doing this with a full awareness that God's word isn't always welcomed. And I just have a respect for these prophets. They're going into some tough situations. So you got all those Levites in Babylon hanging out in the temple they pull out this old scroll called the book of Jehu, and they start reading it alongside the records of the kings in the book of Chronicles, the chronicles of the kings of Israel, and they start pairing the two things up. And so what we get in verses 1 through 7 is one of those pairings. Here's the record from Chronicles, here's this Baasha did all these bad things, and here's the warning he got from Jehu. And they take the script from the book of Jehu, and they put it together, and we get the book of kings. And we've seen a lot of that. But what's going on in Babylon is these scribes are pairing up the way these people led and the prophecies they were getting from the prophets. And they came to this great conclusion. Every time the people of God depart from God's will and God's word, consequences followed. Every time they revived and regenerated back to God's word, God blessed the kingdom. And they saw this kind of downward moving line graph that bounces up and down and the bouncings in perfect correlation with the degree to which they kept God's word. And so they record it and it becomes the book of Kings. I just thought it was an interesting way to look at this. And I can't wait to get to heaven because a lot of these prophets that get passing mention in Kings, we're going to be able to, I think God's kept those records. And we're going to be able to see that there were so many more prophecies with this Old Testament Israel that we get to unpack and say, wow, God warned these people over and over and over again. But with all those warnings, they just rejected it. How could that be possible? Here's how it's possible. Look around the world we live in today. We have so many more prophecies in the word of God today and so many more people on the planet completely ignoring them. Because at the end of the day, it's a spiritual battle. It's not about an intellect. It's about if people want to follow the God of the universe or if they don't. So God warns them. He warns them again. And I think those little Levites sitting in Babylon were like, man, we really blew it. And God warned us at every single step. He warned us over and over and over again. Look at the mercy of our God. Look at the patience of our God. And that we're sitting in Babylon right now because we deserve it. And I think it ultimately when we see God in judgment... He's, we're always going to be at the point where it's perfect judgment. It's just judgment. It makes sense to be judged because God gave us every opportunity to not go down that path. So, Baasha was evil. We saw that last week. He had a warning, then he has a consequence. And those Levites in Babylon are like, man, we missed all of this. And it was all in the temple records. We should have seen this, we should have turned around. Our God is just. And I think if anything, as we go through all these kings, that's part of what we see. So the record of the kings of Israel is that they were told by God, guided by God, and then ignored God over and over and over again. And I think sometimes God's prophets remind the people of God's word, and people just ignore what God's word says. And I don't think it's any different today than it was then. Let's not judge Israel unfairly in the sense that that happened. So... um, The idea that God gets provoked to anger. We threw out God's word that God is slow to anger and he's merciful and he's kind. So it wonders what kind of arrogance Baasha even had to get this kind of warning. Because we see the nature of God is not one that's easily provoked to anger at all. But over time, God gets really sick of the rejection of goodness and the pursuit of evil. And he just gets tired of it. And the thing God does that I think is the greatest punishment he can give Israel is he just lifts his hand and says, you know what, if you want to follow after other gods, let's see how they treat you. Let's see what kind of blessing that puts in your life. And I don't think that's changed at all. We still serve that God that says, you know what, if you really want to go after the world, go after the world and see what it gives you. And he'll he'll allow a season for that to happen over time. In the 26th year of Asa, I'm in verse 8, in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel. He reigned two years in Terzah. And now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terzah drinking himself drunk. Frankly, I just love the phrase drinking yourself drunk, right? It seems like an, a, a creative way to put that. In the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, and he and reigned in his place. Then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne. So this guy goes in, head of one of the generals of the army, head of the chariots, goes in, kills the king, moves the body, and sits on the throne. Like this is is just brutal, right? Then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on the throne, that he killed all of the household of Baasha. He did not leave one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends, He killed all the male friends of the house of Baasha. This is what the pagan world did. This is what God didn't want Israel to be like, right? There's supposed to be peaceful transitions of power. But at this point, we see it looks just like the Gentile world. You take over, you kill everybody. Then thus, Zimri destroyed all of the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord. That's that connection those Levites are making in Babylon. God said it, and then he did it. He said it, then he did it. And the repetition of this, if you get anything out of Kings, God says it, and then he does it. And what we're learning is God is faithful to his word. If he says he's going to do it, it happens. And which he spoke against Baasha and Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah's son, by which they had sinned and by which they made Israel sin, in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. It's that they're seeking after the idols. Now, the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? If you want to learn more, go read Chronicles, which we'll get to. God allows Zimri, and the word Zimri there um, um, in the Hebrew means music, uh, to kill Baasha, which means wickedness. Um, He's a general. There's a military coup. We kind of went through that. David is singled out because he didn't destroy Saul's family. Remember that? And there's a whole piece in there about how he gave mercy to Saul's family and asked around, like, is there anybody left? And they're like, yeah, Jonathan. Jonathan's, you know, kid is out there. And let, me, let me honor Jonathan's family. And instead of killing the house of Saul and eliminating it, he actually blessed the house of Saul. That's what made David so distinct as he was actually following after God's heart. And, and at this point, Israel is just not following after God's heart. So it goes right back to the ways of the world. Verse 11 shows how common it was to kill off all your future competition. It makes sense in a worldly sense. There's nothing distinct about Israel. There's nothing loving about Israel. Israel's just an embarrassment. God's people acts just like every other nation and culture around them. It's a shame when God's people look just like the world, and there's no difference between them and the world. There's no separation, consecration, or a thing called holiness. So this example and Jeroboam becomes the standard of evil, is that he did just like Jeroboam. And so it serves as a lesson or a warning that being in that role of kingship is serious business. So then Zimri shows up, verse 15, in the 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Zimri reigned in Terzah, get this, seven days. So he got to sit on the throne for a week, and that's about it. Because here's what happens. The people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And now the people who were encamped heard it, and it said that Zimri's conspired and killed the king. So all Israel made Omri the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in camp. So they hear about the rebellion against the king, and they're like, we're not going to have any of this. So it takes them a few days to walk from battle with the Philistines to go back to the capital and kill this usurper to the throne. So they do. All Israel made Omri the commander of the army, king over the Israel that day in camp, verse 17. Then Omri and all Israel went with, him, went with him up from Gibbethon and they besieged Tirzah. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. This is like the steward of Gondor, right? It looks like all things are broke, so just hopeless and decides he's going to take as much with him as he can. This is a bitter, nasty person. Verse 19, because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had commanded, committed to make Israel sin. It's interesting, verse 19, he only rules for seven days, but he gets the same summary as these other kings that ruled for years which shows that God's looking at the heart in the book of Kings. He had the same heart as these other evil kings. And he only had seven days to do it, but it also kind of, well, we'll come back to it. Verse 20, Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? The answer to that is yes. It's in Chronicles. We get more detail there. As soon as Omri hears about it, he goes up, marches, and attacks Zimri, and then Zimri, Zimri commits suicide. Suicide, biblically, is a form of murder, and one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. That includes yourself. So in in a biblical version of this, God abhors the murder even of yourself. It's not your life to take. So this idea that people have a right to do this or some sort of noble idea, the Greek tradition, the Japanese tradition, is that there are moments where it's the noble thing to do to take your own life. That's nonsense biblically. There's never a situation where you're at liberty to do that. So the Bible always treats suicide as disgraceful and cowardly. It's the easy way out in that you don't have to take responsibility or face the consequences of anything you've done. So when they're encamped against uh, the Philistines, we get this glimpse that the northern kingdom, they break away from God's people. And remember with David and Solomon, it was noted that they had peace from all their enemies all around it seems like there's never a period of peace for the northern kingdom. They're always at war. They're either at war with Judah to the south, as we saw last week, and this week they're also at war with the Philistines. So there's this idea that I think when we're far from God, we're constantly encamped and embattled and and at war and in conflict. And that spiritual image is there. That when you're close to God, there's a peace that comes with that, but when you're straying from God or you're diving into sin like the Northern Kingdom was, there's just this constant battle to be fought, and it's exhausting. I feel bad for people that call on the name of Christ but then live a life of sin. The two just don't go together. You can't enjoy the sin because you got guilt, and you can't really enjoy a life in Christ because you got sin. And the northern kingdom's experiencing that. Their new version of religion that they made up last week under Jeroboam, it's not doing them any good at all. And so why even pretend? And that's what we're going to see as we get into the next couple kings. They just stop pretending to be Yahweh's people. So the spirit of God and his presence is always evidenced, or there's a pattern, it's evidenced with peace and unity, and at least, not that there isn't conflict, as we'll see with Hezekiah, and we'll see with Nehemiah and Ezra, there's still conflict sometimes, but there's a unity and a rest that comes for God's people because they can rely on the Lord, even in those tougher times. Decades of unremarkable leadership is what should stand out from the southern kingdom. With more godly kings, there's not as much to report. But in the northern kingdom, seven different kings, uh, regicide comes in, and then they got battle, inciting and civil war, The death that's recorded in verses 19 and 20 is the same as every other death that we see, even with a king that only rules seven days. And here's the last point on that. In only seven days, the king is held accountable for everything he does in those seven days. And it it takes, I think, for somebody to hear the gospel and respond to it, like I, I think in an instant, you're suddenly accountable for everything moving forward. And I think for believers, that's an important thing to know that if you have decided to follow Jesus, you're actually accountable for all your actions from that point forward. And even a king that only gets seven days in that role where he's got some responsibility, um, he's still held accountable for the time that he has. It would only take him two minutes to sit on that throne and make a commandment to say, tear down every idol in the land. So he had seven days to give that command and he fails to do it and he goes down in history as another loser, right? And there, there goes another one. So how much more, honestly, and just an just encouragement, how much more responsible are we in that we've been given the kingdom of God and that we're held as, as children of the kingdom of God and ambassadors of the kingdom of God? And we've had so many more days than seven, to start acting on what we know to be true. And in that sense, like getting the sin out of your personal spiritual country is something we should all be active. It takes one moment to accept the salvation of God. It takes a lifetime to get the sin out of your life. It's a total journey, as we saw in Mark. Then you get to Omri, verse 21. This is that general that comes in and took out the, uh, the uh, king killer. Verse 21, then the people of Israel are divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibri, the son of Ginath, Gen- And by the way, Ginath in the Hebrew means smarty. Like literally like smarty pants. So contrast that with Ginath smarty, to make him king. And half followed Omri, which in the Hebrew means learner. One of them is a smarty pants. One of them is a learner. And just a weird kind of set of names there. Verse 22, but the people who followed Omri, the learner, prevailed over the people who followed the Smarty Pants, the son of Ginnath. So Tibri died, Smarty Pants died, and Lerner reigned. And God raises him up to the kingship. In the 31st year of King Asa, the king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, and then he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. That's a lot of money. And he built on the hill and he called the name of the city which he built Samaria. So this is an origin story because Samaria is going to be around till Jesus' time. right? He met the Samaritan woman at the well. So he builds a new city called Samaria. And Omri did evil. Oh, at name, after the name of Shemer, who was the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did worse than all who were before him. That's hard to top Jeroboam, but he does. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. So Israel has a civil war. Again, constant battle, constant struggle. The the battle here is a five-year war, and this Omri character is successful from a worldly perspective. Omri is actually noted on the Moabite stone as one of the mighty kings of Israel, yet the Book of Kings treats him like just another sinner. So it's interesting that you've got a scumbag king killer that dies after seven days, and he's treated the exact same way as Omro, who has a much longer reign, and is actually, by any worldly standard, um, is respected. So the Moabites recorded him in their records. The Assyrians also have Omri recorded in their records. And in their records, they called him the warrior king of Israel. He was a mighty king. And we only get a hint of that in the book of Kings, where it says, um, in verse 27, the might that he showed. So he was an extremely powerful king. We know he came from the military, Um, we see the origins of Samaria, which becomes their capital. Samaria is only about 30 miles from Jerusalem. We know that Jesus walked there and met people in that area. In fact, the Jewish people of the southern would actually go around the region of Samaria to go to the northern parts of the kingdom, even though the walk was significantly longer because this was such a repulsive place to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is part of why it's a repulsive place. It was built in defiance of the southern kingdom. It becomes a barrier city. It's built on this hill. Uh, We know from excavations of Samaria that it was 100 meters high. This was a fortress city. It would have been an epic drawing, right? It's the city on a 100-meter high hill with walls all around it, virtually impregnable. So it was built to be a defense city from the southern kingdom. It was built as a defiance of God's united Israel. Um, and it was built here in this kingdom in order to stand against the southern kingdom. Omri then becomes another evil king, not only in the full participation in idol worship. Remember those idols were Ashtaroth, Chemosh, Molech. Those things become more relevant than his accomplishments. He's a successful king. He builds roads. He builds cities. He builds fortresses. By any worldly standard, he's a pretty good king. But by God's standard, he's just another sinner that went after idols. And at this point, God's just letting him have the way of the world. He's taken his hand off of it. So it says he did worse than all of the other kings behind him. How's that even possible? You go to the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. He indicates that Omri actually, this is what he did was worse than Jeremiah. He followed after the same idols, but he actually mandated that people follow them too. So Micah 6.16 says, For the statutes of Omri are kept and all the work of Ahab's house are done as you walk in their councils that I might make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. Is Northern Kingdom became a hissing in the sound of the ears? When you go walking anywhere and you hear a hiss, the only thing worse than a hiss is a rattle. But you know that there's a snake around. And I think there's something woven into our core that when we hear that sound, it makes us jump back. Like it immediately makes the adrenaline go because nobody wants to get bit by a snake. So Israel becomes a hissing in God's ear because of Omri. And what Micah points out is that there's statutes. He was a very strong king and he codified idol worship, mandating it for all the people. So what can be worse than rejecting God? Forcing other people to reject God. And that's where Omri becomes, that's where the Northern Kingdom takes another step away from the Lord. So Jeroboam just set up false worship that pretended to be Yahweh worship. And then these idols start to come in and they get worshipped alongside it. But then the next thing you know, people are being mandated to worship other gods. So we see that Israel is uniquely has no interest in puffing up their own history. And I think this is an important part about the histories of Israel. Unique to all ancient records the Bible becomes one of the most reliable ancient records because the authors don't seem to have any interest in puffing up their leaders of, of old. You read Greek histories, their leaders were almost demigods, right? If you read Roman histories, their leaders are, you know, were, were puffed up to be deified. You read Jewish histories, and it's like, here's another scumbag that failed even worse than the other scumbag. They don't seem to have any interest in puffing up their history. And that becomes a really interesting historical document. The reason they don't puff up their history is because the entire culture of the Jewish people is to glorify and magnify God. And humans aren't that important. And if you want to understand how the world works truthfully, you understand that God is good to those that follow him, and there's curses that go with not following him. So they're happy to point out the curses. They only point out the truth and the faithfulness of God when they do. Where other nations and cultures are trying to puff up their culture, so they puff up the people that... Establish that culture. So even powerful, quote-unquote, successful leaders like Omri, they get the same shellacking in history based on their holiness, not based on their accomplishments. The other piece is codified into the law of God is you shall not bear false witness. So part of the Jewish culture is that they're sinning if they record a history that's inaccurate. So the Jewish historians do everything they can do to get it right. This is truly unique in ancient texts. You can't read any other ancient text and trust it in the same kind of way because these people would be dooming themselves to hell if they told a false history. So you get these really honest portrayals of these kings. And that's why the Bible, I think, continues to this day to be one of the most reliable historical texts that we have. Multiple authors telling us the same narrative throughout history. Then we get to Ahab. Ahab's the worst. He resembles his father. That's what the name Ahab means. I re- resemble my father. And he follows in his tread. So in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice they've said three three, three times Ahab the son of Omri. So resembling my father, the son of learning, resembling his father, the son of learning. So we just see that kind of repetition that's there. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, which is all that matters to the writers of kings. Did they do good or did they not do good? Again, more than all who were before him. So how do you get even worse than Jeroboam and even worse than Omri? First of all, he keeps, we saw from Micah, Ahab kept all of the laws that Omri passed. And he enforced this mandatory worship of false gods. And then in verse 31, And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jehoboam, the son of Nepat, that he took as a wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings who were before him. That's Ahab. He's notable in three big sins one sin, idol worship. Second sin, Jezebel. Third sin, he rebuilds Jericho, which is coming up. So he defies God. So much more than just allowing idol worship and even telling people to go to idol worship. Not only does he do that, but he introduces this God Baal into the Israelite community. Baal's really worse than the other gods. in that Baal is the claims to be the god of all those other gods. There were the Baals, which were like the whole pantheon. So there's a Baal of this and a Baal of that. And then there was the Baal, who is over all those other gods. Baal is one of the only gods that claims to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. Baal claims to be god of all gods, direct defiance of Yahweh, taking the role of Yahweh, challenging it. So how do they write this up? Frankly, there's a lot of humor here. In the darkest times of Israel, the writers record it in a way that I think is hilarious. Most historians believe Jezebel's name was not Jezebel. It was Jezebel. just like her dad, right? So it is likely that they changed the spelling of Jezebel in the Bible to read Jezebel, because changing that one letter from Baal to Jezebel has a great effect. Um, Jezebel or Jez Baal in the language of the day would have been one who shouts at Baal. So it would have been a, like a Jez would be a noise they would make in Baalic rituals, and so they believe Jez Baal is the noise you would make at these, res, these rituals for Baal. By changing a single letter, they turn her name into the Hebrew meaning poop woman. So she literally, the word they're using when they change it to Jezebel, is, is changing the ritual calling from Baal, which is likely her real name, into the word for feces or poop or poop woman. And they change this term, and they call her that through the whole Bible. She's poop woman. And I think that's, I don't know why, but I think that's one of the indicators of God's people is we can laugh even at horrible leaders. And there is a certain joy to God's people that we can just recognize an idiot when we see one. And there's that idea of they don't get too worked up about it. They don't get too angry about it. They just call her poop woman. And everybody knows what they're talking about. And we see sometimes God's people use fairly vulgar language. This is not a friendly term. In fact, I'm using friendly language to keep it PG-13. It's actually the word that we would call a swear word. That's what they called this woman. So it's not the first time we've seen a slight spelling change in the Hebrew to make it into a derogatory Hebrew name. We've seen that a few times now. Godly people tend to make humor at really horrible situations because what else can you do but laugh? And sometimes that's just the way to handle some of these things. So, the name Ethbaal, her dad's name, means to be with Baal. So, literally, when they say Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, they're saying poop is what comes from being with Baal. And they change the whole phrase. You want to hang out with Baal? You turn your life into poop. I li- I don't know why, but I think that's really cute. <laughs> I have a be- I-, I have a sense of humor. So in marrying Jezebel, and and saying that swear word every time we say Jezebel, in marrying Jezebel and following Baal, they go together in verse 31. There's an and between them. When he marries her, he marries her belief system too. And he ties himself. The biblical view of marriage is when you marry somebody, you become one with that person. You accept who they are and take them into your life You don't marry someone thinking you're going to change them, essentially. You will grow and change together, but at that point of marriage, you're taking everything they are and you're becoming one with that person. So in marrying poop woman, he becomes poop man. And the two of them rule together, poop man and poop woman. Chronicles tells us a lot more about Jezebel and Ahab. Jezebel's a cruel, harsh, mean human being. She's vindictive. She keeps a record of wrongs, and she actively attacks the people of God in their country. So it's gone way past just tolerating other worship. By the time we get to Ahab, they're actively persecuting the people that serve Yahweh. This is how it gets worse. How does it get worse from Jeroboam just permitting sin? Well, it gets worse when you start mandating sin. It gets even worse when you start persecuting God's people. It gets even worse when you marry poop woman. Like it just gets worse. Ahab is largely given over to her force of will and ultimately she reigns in the northern kingdom in the time of Ahab. Ahab's seen as a weak leader. His dad was a strong leader and he was a weak leader. And in taking Jezebel into the house, he also marries a foreign woman. Israelite kings weren't supposed to marry non-Hebrews. So by marrying the king of the Sidonians, that's a political marriage. They were the most powerful empire in the area. By this time, the Sidonians, remember, they were doing trade routes for David and Solomon, bringing tin from Britain, all up and down the northern coasts and the the western coasts of Africa, and they were sailing all the way around by the coasts of India. The Sidonians had a shipping empire that was huge. That's a pretty convenient marriage for a northern king of Israel. So to get Jezebel in there, he gets a spoiled woman, forceful woman and somebody who's actually horrible for the nation of Israel because she brings in that Sidonian god named Baal. And Baal's going to be around as a problem for Israel all the way to Babylon. It's a permanent addition to the struggles that Israel has. Let me tell you a little bit about Baal. I've introduced some of the other ones. Baal was known as the sky god. He was the lord of lords, the king of kings. That's the titles he claimed. He was an imitator of Yahweh himself claiming all power, all dominion, and all glory. If you worship Baal, you had no room to worship other gods. So it was a monotheistic religion when you served Baal. You could serve the little other Baals that were out there, but ultimately the Baal had all the power and all the strength. So if you want rain, you prayed to Baal. If you want the skies to open up and you want famine to go away in your land, you prayed to Baal because Baal claimed to control the weather. And to control the weather in the ancient world, that was everything. That was food, that was water, that was life. So Baal claimed power, prosperity, money, and life itself under his dominion. And even all the other gods had to bow to Baal. So this is where Baal worship becomes a harsh thing to bring into your country. It was an oppressive religion because to live in a country where the king serves Baal means you have to serve Baal. And ultimately, you serve the government that reigns and serves under Baal. And if you don't do that, you're a threat to the country. So Baal becomes one of the most oppressive religions that the ancient world knows. Chronicles points out all of this too, this empire that grows. Where Jeroboam simply invented false ways to worship and serve Yahweh, at this point, the northern Kingdom's given up on Yahweh altogether. Yahweh becomes irrelevant. And this is important as God steps in at this point. Ahab builds a temple for and actively worships Baal, the god. More than just being passive, he actually pursues this. That's an active rejection of Yahweh as superior, and he starts to treat Baal as superior. The world's version of power and wealth becomes superior to Yahweh itself. This is commanding other people to do the same. Verse 31, He made trivial the things of God, and he went to and served the Baal, and three, he worshipped the Baal. Didn't just go there, he went there and served Baal. Didn't just go there and serve Baal, he went there and served Baal, and then he worshipped him. His heart was into Baal more than Yahweh. So Jeroboam saw serving God is too much work, too difficult, tried to make it easy compromised that Jerusalem worship system God set up. but by the time we hit Ahab, they've just totally thrown it out the window, built their own temples and served completely different gods. That's the decline of a nation. That's how it works. Verse 34. In his days, Haiel of Bethel built Jericho. And again, this is the third sin of Ahab. He laid its foundation with Abiram as his firstborn, and with his youngest Segam, he set up its gates. According to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So we got to go back to Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. This is what Joshua said. He charged them at the time. They just tore down the walls of Jericho. Actually, God tore down the walls of Jericho. And then Joshua says prophetically, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set it up as its gates. In other words... Whoever dares to rebuild that city, they're going to lose their firstborn son and they're going to lose um, their youngest son at the foundation and the end of the project. The first one should be a warning. You lose your firstborn son, that's just like Egypt, right? That should be a warning to stop building the city. But then to lose your youngest at the end of it, like that, that comes true too. So this is another prophecy fulfilled. Remember, God keeps his word. The writers are pointing this out. Even when you defy God, God keeps his word. God's word came through Joshua generations ago at this point. In other words, God keeps his word through generations. and That's an important message from the book of Kings. It doesn't matter how far away the culture is getting from God. God will keep his word, and it doesn't matter if you haven't heard from him in a while that his word will come true. This is an important concept when we get to the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews claims God was faithful through the entire Old Testament. He's never broke his word. So when we trust in Jesus, it's because God has never broken his word and he won't do it even with what he predicts with Jesus. So when Jesus says, when I come for you, I'm going to collect my children unto me, we can trust God's going to keep that true even if we haven't heard from God for a while. So God keeps his promise. Also, the rebuilding of Jericho that this guy that that Ahab sends out, heal, um, this should be a warning to Ahab too. Like he should recognize like God's still there and he still keeps his promises. But he doesn't care. The rebuilding of Jericho is an outright defiance against God and the guy he sends out willingly gives up his kids. That's terrible. It's almost like Moloch worship. Then you get to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're just going to do the first part and introduce Elijah tonight. And we'll, do, we'll get into Elijah, which is the next two and a half chapters. Uh, ch- uh, verse 1, chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite, and of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain on these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherish, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherish, which flows into the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. When Elijah's introduced, it starts with the word and in verse 1. Do you see that? I think that connection is an important and a hopeful and encouraging thing. No matter how bad it gets, God is still at work. So you get the worst king we've seen in the book of kings so far, and you get one of the mightiest prophets ever. This is, I, this is bad of me, but when I see the news, and you see Christians that get all anxious about the news, and how bad it's getting, and how sinful it's getting, and I'm just thinking, oh, awesome, because God will respond. There's an and with that. The worse the culture gets, the better God's people get. And notice that Elijah Elijah doesn't lack for food. He's got to eat it from a bird's mouth, which is a little gross. But God actually provides for his people. And he always provides for his people. Noah stood against his whole culture, and God put him in a boat. Like God always protects and guards his children in these things. So there might be trials, there might be tribulation, there might be persecution that goes with it, but the spiritual peace that God provides sets us up for that and we're ready for it. So while evil gets stronger as we've seen in Israel, God's people get bolder. Notice that Elijah is nothing like the judges. He doesn't we don't have all the sin of the judges. We don't have the like there's nothing like Samson in this guy. He's bold, he's certain, he trusts in the word of God and he proclaims it. This is a gutsy character. The word Elijah means my God is Yahweh, which means Elijah's parents knew how to name their kid. We've seen the kings of Israel take on names like Baasha or Wicked. Like, not with Elijah's family. Like, they named him, my God is Yahweh. To even say Elijah's name is to proclaim that my God is Yahweh. Think about that in Baal worship Israel, northern Israel. Like, that's gutsy. They don't even want to say his name because to say his name is to proclaim the word of God. Talk about putting the Lord in front. Go to the courthouse, change your name to the Lord Jesus Christ is my God. And then anybody, people have to talk to you, they have to say, Jesus Christ is my God. Like that would be an identity change. And you'd say, no, 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 no. Use my pronoun. I go by Jesus Christ is God. Or I stand for Jesus and make everybody say it every time they talk to you. That was Elijah. He made everybody say it whenever they talked to him. So they don't like to say his name. In fact, Elijah is not very well liked by Ahab. We're gonna see that. But he uses his own name to proclaim the truth of Yahweh. I just think that's great. He's a Tishbite. The word Tishbite is not necessarily a family that we can recognize through the genealogies. And in the Hebrew, the word Tishbite means captive or slave. It could be a town, but it's more likely a caste where he came from a group of captive people, which is why he lives simply. He also is in Gilead, which is outside the promised land. He's east of Jordan. So, and this is part of the Manasseh territory. So, Um, with the conquest of David and and Solomon, like this was Israelite territory, but it's not really part of the, remember the Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh took the land to the east of the Jordan? So this is where Elijah comes from. It's poor, rough, rocky country. It's likely that Elijah was a visual contrast to the wealth of Omri and Ahab. And when you saw Elijah, you didn't see much. You saw kind of a a scuzzy-looking guy that was raised in the hill country. Right? You saw grizzly atoms, but no grizzly bear. Elijah's born into and surrounded by pagans, living with the fire on the hill, the sex in the groves. He's totally immersed in that culture, but he comes from a family that names him, my God is Yahweh. Despite everything around him, this is one guy that's going to stand different. So he's living with, he grows up with child sacrifices. He grows up with human mutilation this religion of Baal, which is fear and oppression and you be fearful of this government or we're going to get you. He grows up in all of that. and He's like, you know what? My God's Yahweh. And he becomes a messenger to Ahab. He hears God and he goes before the most evil king that Israel's ever seen. And he says, you're going to have famine. That's pretty gutsy. Regardless of how far God's people get, he's going to raise up people like this. And I think that's really good news. Like, that's really exciting for believers. If you believe God's in charge at the end of the day, God doesn't let his promises fail. So God's people are still in Israel. We're going to find out later. Elijah feels like he's all alone. But actually, God's like, oh, no, no, no. There's a few thousand here that are with you. But those people are passive. They're fearful. They're silent. They're hiding. They're underground because they're scared of what Ahab and Ahab's priests are going to do to them. But all it takes is one godly person to fight the whole system. I love, this is why I love history. You see this again and again and again in history. It just takes one person in Tiananmen Square to stand in front of a tank. It just takes one guy to give a sermon at his church to start an entire revolution in the South that stops segregation. It takes one guy in England to say, I will not stand for slavery anymore. And you just see this over and over and over again. Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, nameless person in China. You just see the people of God rise up and say, no, thank you to your nonsense. And you can't make me. All you can do is kill me. And that's Elijah. He doesn't know God's going to preserve him with crows in the wilderness. That seems extreme, don't you think? Elijah just step-by-step step does what he's told to do. God tells him to go talk to Ahab. He goes talks to Ahab. It's after he talks to Ahab that he's told how God's going to provide for him. It's so amazing that Elijah goes in without that knowledge. Like he's assuming that's the last day he's going to walk the earth. Try going to tell Ahab that he's against God's will and he's going to have famine. One Elijah plus God outnumbers all of the evil people around That should give each of us courage. You plus God defeats anything this world can throw at you. And I just, Elijah stands out like that. He could easily have stayed home like all the other people serving and worshiping Yahweh. He could have watched TV. He could have got a new streaming service, you know, Up Faith and Family. He could have done a food drive on the weekend or he could have just, you know, bottled some water for himself He could have done any of those things, but he didn't. He chose to go right to the king and say, you are in sin. The truth is that we serve an almighty God that can change a culture, that can move a mountain, that can make the river stop and the seas part. And when we lose sight of how big our God is, we become fearful of what other humans can do to us. Instead of bold, we become chickens. But we serve a God, and and to be introduced to Elijah in this kind of way, is to note that sometimes God raises up people with such conviction that they'll do anything but serve what the world has to offer. And they'll stand apart and be consecrated. And they speak truth unwaveringly despite the consequences that are a threat. I don't want to do that. I might get in trouble. Then you get Elijah's like, I'm going to go make some trouble. And we do it with a certain amount of joy. And we see what happens next. And the writer of Kings takes a lot of time to talk about Elijah. Despite that this is a record of Kings, it's also a record of these prophets that showed up. And the prophets keep getting stronger and more godly, and the kings keep getting weaker and more ungodly. And and I think that's what the writers are trying to show us. And they introduce Ahab, and then they put Elijah as a contrast. Baasha and Jehu is the contrast. So here you get this person. It says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. Think of that statement. Think of what he's saying to Ahab there. The context to this is that God's warning them again and again and again. And we see throughout history, God does use famine and weather to warn a nation. And when you see the famine and the weather get wacky, sometimes that's God. Regardless of what the world is saying it is, sometimes God uses that to warn a country. So Elijah's just there to make sure that they make the connection. You're about to go through famine, Ahab, and I'm here to tell you, as the Lord lives, he's not a dead God, and that's what Ahab was doing. He was saying this Yahweh was less powerful than Baal. But as the Lord lives, you're about to have famine. Elijah's just helping to make the connection. We see nations that when they leave God, they're in constant conflict. And, I, and I, I'm not doing justice to kings if I don't point this out. America's been in constant conflict since Iraq. We've been in 30 years of constant conflict with other nations. And part of that goes hand in hand with the fact that as a nation, we've departed the service of Yahweh and become serving ourselves. And there's a danger to that as a country. God's people are bold enough to remember and warn people of these things. Jeremiah twenty nine seventeen. thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and I will make them like rotten figs that can't be eaten. They are so bad. That's the word of God. There are promised warnings to nations when they go off kilter. Here, just like in Egypt, God challenges the very God's that are claiming to have more power than Yahweh. When you go through the plagues of Egypt, they match perfectly with the gods of Egypt. If you're going against Baal and Ahab, this goes directly against the power that Baal claims to have. He has power over the sky and the weather. So Elijah comes in and says, your, your dead god Baal, is gonna get, you're going to get famine, and it's not because Baal doesn't love you. It's because Baal has no power over Yahweh. It doesn't deny that Baal exists either. We should be aware of that. There's no denial of false gods. There is a denial of their power and their ability of what they have power over. So he says, the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh God of Israel, Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Regardless of what people worship, God is still on his throne and he's still faithful. And just because you don't feel God doesn't mean God's not there. Before whom I stand. I think it's funny because physically speaking, who is Elijah in front of when he says that? Ahab. And he's saying, I don't stand in front of Ahab right now. I stand before the living God, the Lord God of Israel. And he's introducing God into this conversation. And a child of God is always walking in the face of God. If you accepted Christ as your Savior and trying to follow him with your life, you're always in front of God. And that becomes a bigger force in your life than the king you're in front of. For all the wonders that are to come in Elijah's life, this is the first one. It involves no miracle whatsoever at the point of him saying this. The only miracle is that a human being decided to actually listen to God and go bring the message that they're told to bring. At this point in history, that's an absolute miracle. Everything that Elijah's going to do in his life starts with a simple obedience to God's word. He knows God's word and he proclaims it. Everything else to follow starts from that point, And we shouldn't lose sight of that next week. Elijah puts himself in the gap. He risks his own life to proclaim God's word with truth. And I don't see that he's coming in mean or anything like that. It's the writers that play with Jezebel's name. I see him walking up saying, here's the situation. You're about to have famine. And the only person that can stop your famine is me. Because the power of God is working through me. That's a bold thing to say, but he's putting himself in the gap. If all of Israel thinks Yahweh is an old dead God, but Elijah says he's alive right now, presently, and he's working through me, that's to say I stand before God and his power is about to exert itself. Get ready Ahab, this is one of your final warnings. Get ready Israel, this is one of your final warnings. Northern Israel is going to, to be absolutely eradicated. And this is part of why they're going to be eradicated. It's what the writers of Kings are trying to show us. God doesn't punish before he warns. There's a justice to God. The power of God then is something that makes most people fail physically. So for Elijah to say, I stand before a mighty God, that's quite a claim too, right? Because we've seen, like in the Bible, we've seen that knees tremble. We've seen bodily fluids get released. Like, The average sinner can't stand in the face of a powerful, almighty God. It doesn't happen that way. So when Elijah says, I stand before God, that's making a claim that he's up there with Moses. Because Moses was able to stand before God. Actually, Moses often fell on his face before God. But Elijah says, I stand before God. That's a huge claim. The highest title that a humble servant can ever claim is that as humble as we are before an almighty God we actually can stand before him. And Christians, we're called to even greater, we're called to go boldly before the throne of God because we know that we can trust in Christ Jesus to protect us. We have nothing to fear in the face of this almighty, all-powerful, all-holy God. And this is pre-Jesus, Elijah's making that kind of claim. Hebrews 4.16, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When God accepts us, we can stand before him. Elijah says, accept it, my word. He claims that the authority that he's speaking for is God's authority, and this is totally unique that he says, accept it, my word. This is totally the first time we've seen this in the Bible. No other servant of God has claimed that he's going to speak for God. Even Moses said this is what God said. Moses didn't claim his own word had any authority whatsoever, but Elijah does. He speaks with that kind of authority. This is interesting. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do the people think I am? Matthew 16, 13. Who do men say that I am? The Son of Man. Who does it say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why did they use Elijah there? Because Elijah and John the Baptist had something very similar. They both dressed like they were not very fashionable people, they both hung out in the wilderness. And they both spoke the word of God with total boldness and authority. So when they hear Jesus teaching with authority, the people were going, maybe this is Elijah reborn. Maybe the spirit of Elijah is back with us. Because he teaches like he speaks for God. And Jesus spoke for God a lot because he was God. So people read that and they see how Elijah speaks in this single sentence. And we see something really distinct in Elijah that he claims to speak for God. Jesus claims to speak as God which is where he corrects the disciples and says that only the holy spirit can show you that I'm different than Elijah. Verse 2 then the word of the lord came to him saying. It's interesting every time we see the word of the lord come to one of these servants it comes differently. And with Elijah there's no burning bush, there's no voice from the top of the mountain, there's no earthquake, there's none of that. And we're going to see later that the in chapter 19 the description of how God talks to Elijah is like a still small voice. Just this gentle, God just talks to Elijah. Elijah, more than any other prophet, the way God communicates with Elijah reflects the way the Holy Spirit talks to the average Christian. It's really curious. It's like Elijah was a Christian before there was such a thing. Another reason why people compare Jesus to Elijah. There's some similarities. Verse three get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherish, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. It's interesting that God tells Elijah to get the heck out of there. I think as Christians sometimes we stand in the gap and we see that as super heroic and we unnecessarily let ourselves get beat up. And God tells Elijah to give the message and then get the heck out of there. And that's just as holy if you're listening to God then give the message and stay there for the consequences. Which is why it's so important that every Christian build that relationship with God to where we're following what he says with fidelity because he doesn't tell everybody to act the same way in the same place, in the same situations. God directs his church with different people doing different things. And in this instance, he doesn't stick around like Moses was supposed to. He's told to get the heck out of there. Here's what's funny here too. He gives the warning to Ahab about the famine and now Ahab can't find him anywhere. Like if he's the only one that can stop the famine and Ahab can't find him, That creates an interesting dilemma for Ahab. Like the only way that he can stop this is to get Elijah to say something, and then he has got to go find him. So he goes into hiding. And I think that's great. Sometimes we back off as believers. Sometimes we give people time. The long game is the one that God plays with people's hearts. Ahab's got a super hard heart. It needs to get softened with a little famine. right? His kingship, his God needs to be brought into question. And that's going to take years of famine for Ahab's heart to crack a little bit, if it's even possible to get him, especially with Jezebel, poop woman on his side, right? So they turn eastward. We get a glimpse that God leads Elijah away from God's people, not towards God's people. Again, this is really different from other people we've seen. And it should tell us how important it is to know what God's calling us to do because it seems counterintuitive. You'd think he would go to the southern kingdom of Judah, Or he would go towards Jerusalem and the temple. But he doesn't. He goes out to the wilderness. Elijah following this shows that Elijah's agenda is gone. He's just following the king. And he's going where God tells him to. So we get a sense that Elijah's expectations are like, I'm going to go wherever you want me to go. And that's where God can use him. There's no marketing plan. There's no Elijah Rocks podcast. Going on, he doesn't have this how to beat a strategy for how to beat Ahab. He doesn't even stick around to critique Ahab. He just goes where God tells him to go, and sometimes that's humble and away from the fight, instead of into the fight. This is just crazy. He hides by the brook Cherish. Uh, The word Cherith means to cut or to separate. God actually gets him away from things, and he's going to drink from the brook of separation. He's going to consecrate or separate himself from God's people for a season. And when he comes back, he comes back with more authority, not less. So there's value here in not getting executed by Ahab. And Ahab starts killing priests of Yahweh. Like he goes after them to the point where even Elijah is like, is this good? But again, this is a, a long game. He says, you shall drink. When God makes arrangements for God's people, he provides for God's people. I find that really encouraging. We have nothing to fear. And even to the point where a, a, a raven comes and feeds him, when he says, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there, God's showing authority even over the birds. The provision that God promises is there at the book Cherish. God doesn't say he'll be provided for anywhere he goes. He has to go to the Brook Cherish because the ravens will provide for him there. And that's a particular location. So what if Elijah went somewhere else? What if he went back to Jerusalem? God makes no promise to provide for him when he leaves God's word. So he has to do the way God says to do it, and he does. So he's going to spend some time in the wilderness. He's going to get provided for there, um, and he's going to hang out. Verse 5, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherish, which flows from the Jordan. That's the miracle. Just a person that follows God's will and puts their own will to the side and does what God tells them to do. And I think God just cherishes these people. The ravens brought him bread and and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. This is disgusting. I don't know if, but ravens eat dead things, which is not kosher. Ravens are not kosher food. So to eat things from, I don't know if you've seen what birds do to things, but they spit it out to their young and it's a form of kind of vomity, nasty stuff. So this is weird. There's a miracle here. Make no question about it. We can assume, because he's being told to eat from an unclean bird, that God's allowing him to stay holy under his law. Like the bird takes fresh meat, picks it up, does not eat it, and brings it to Elijah and drops it, which is why it says the Lord commanded the ravens. This is a miracle. So for Elijah to stay clean, he does it in such a God provides for that, but he's got, there's nothing in the law that says you can't accept food from a raven. There's just the, the ravens, you can't eat them and you can't eat dead things. So these ravens are eating things they don't normally get. Ravens don't normally pick up bread and bring it and drop it off to people. Absolute miracle. They usually eat the bread, if nothing else. So Elijah learns, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, he learns to trust that God will provide for him morning and night. And he's got to eat bird food. And it's not glorious, and it's not wonderful. It's a very simple life. God's going to later let the brook dry up, and then he's going to redirect Elijah to go somewhere else. So that provision is going to dry up. And part of that is how God redirects his people. That this thing that was sustaining you doesn't do it anymore. Time to move on. So next week we'll come back to this. We'll study Elijah's ministry. But right now we're just going to leave him in the wilderness eating the food of ravens. And that's where Elijah's going to really start his ministry and doing what he does for the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that in the direst of times for the Northern Kingdom that you introduced one of the greatest of prophets. We, we know, we, Lord, that we can too trust in you, that you are ever faithful to your people. Lord, help us to have no fear. Help us to boldly proclaim, joyfully proclaim, and gracefully give the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so happy at what you've provided and what you've offered to us. But we live in a culture that not only accepts other worship, but a culture that's even started to attack Christians and attack the belief of Christians and the values that you've given to us from your word. And Lord, we know that um, you can endure those things and sometimes we get scared to be followers. But Lord, give us a great boldness that we know that you are in control and that there is a tolerance to your patience, Lord, and that we want to be on the right side of things. Lord, give us a great courage when we speak in your name because we do it um, because it's written in your word and we trust and believe that your word is true for all generations and not just for Elijah's but for ours too. Uh, Lord, help us to be joyful. Help us to even with the worst of people playfully um, deal with them and have a sense of humor about it all because, Lord, we don't take it too seriously. We know that you're in control and the most powerful schemes of of humans are are an excuse for you to have some fun with them. So Lord, help us to be people that trust in your name, that follow you step by step, just like Elijah. Lord, we don't know what the next step is all the time, but we know where you've put us and you know what you have us doing. And help us to just do that faithfully and joyfully. Lord, I pray for fellowship tonight. As we pray together, as we fellowship together, may your Holy Spirit just be among us. May it fill this coffee shop. May we leave here refreshed and renewed for the week.